just enough wisdom, found out it was not wisdom, that we would take 12 teenagers from East Tennessee to Oklahoma City for a week by ourselves. No other sponsors, just the two of us. We knew a whole lot about teenagers at that point. So we figured we would just do that. And somehow those parents entrusted us. Well, first day went great. Took us the whole day to get across Tennessee. You know, it's a long journey. Next day we started out and the bus broke down. And uh, we spent the next six hours in a gas station while they tried to repair it for us. It was 103 degrees. It was awful. There was no air conditioning. We sat out under the awning, all of us, trying to keep all of these teenagers satisfied till the bus could be fixed. And we were so glad to pull into Fort Smith that night. We arrived at Oklahoma City, found out the week before the desk clerk had been shot dead by somebody stealing from the motel. And we're thinking, what are we doing here? You know? That was, that was some trip. It improved from that point. So thankfully we had a good North American Christian convention we were going to. The kids did great in Bible Bowl and all of that. But it was a great experience from then on. But the beginning of it was not so great. And we wondered if we'd get there at all. We've all had something go wrong, haven't we, on a trip? Something terribly wrong. Sometimes become, uh, things become so difficult that we can't even continue the trip. The car breaks down. And we just have to go home. The money runs out. So you turn around and maybe hitchhike your way home. Or maybe someone gets hurt or sick while you're on vacation. And you spend your whole vacation time in the hospital in some strange city. You don't know the hospital. You don't know the doctors. You don't know anybody. You just want your family member to get well so you can go back home and get life going again. Many things can mess up our travels. Sometimes in our journeys we feel like Clark Griswold, don't we? All those National Lampoon vacation movies, you know. Everything that could possibly go wrong. It just, just seems like there's a string of mishaps and catastrophes. Life can be like that, just as a journey can, isn't it? It just Life can be just like one thing after another, piled up. And so the disasters continue. Whatever little progress we were making is stopped cold. Just when things finally start running well, somebody throws a wrench into our plans. And the Bible talks about this. God's Word doesn't ignore this. God's Word doesn't say, well, you know, life's going to be smooth sailing as a Christian. It's going to be a bed of roses. It'll just be wonderful once you give your life to Christ. Everything will go perfectly. It never promises that. In fact, it handles that. It deals with that. It discusses that. And it says, here's what you do. Here's how you handle life when life happens as it normally happens. James 1, 2-4 says this, Consider it pure joy, brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There is something good about trials, the Bible says, something that is joyful, Notice three things that the Word of God says here. First of all, that trials are unavoidable. They'll be there. You know, you're not going to just stop those. There's not going to be, uh, you know, oh, this year we're not going to have any trials. We're just going to sail through. Everyone has them. We are taught not to avoid them, but to learn from them. Secondly, it says trials test our faith to strengthen that faith, not not to find out whether we have faith at all or not. That's not the point. The point is to make us stronger through the trial. The function is to test and strengthen our faith, to make it stronger. Just as a power lifter lifts weights, 
and lifts more weights or more repetitions of those weights in order to strengthen the muscles of his body. A weightlifter pushes himself to lift more than he ever did before or maybe do more repetitions. And the reason is that he knows that when he stretches his muscles, when he pushes them to the limit, then they grow bigger and stronger. This only happens when he pushes himself. It doesn't happen when he says, I think I'll do fewer today. I think I'll do less pounds today. You never strengthen a muscle that way. Now, there's another way to look at this. In the Septuagint, another version of the Bible written in Greek, it, was, it says the word testing here that James uses, the testing of our faith, developing perseverance. It is the word used for the silversmith who is refining silver. And so he takes this raw silver, this silver with a lot of impurities, and he puts it to the fire. And the fire allows him to clean off the dross, to clean off the unworthiness of that silver, and for the true silver, the pure silver, to come shining through. Third thing the scripture says here is that when we persevere in our trials, our trials produce growth. They produce advancement. They produce development and eventually maturity. When we don't give up, we mature. When we get through these things, we become stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's why James can say, consider it pure joy whenever you face various kinds of trials. Perseverance is the ability to bear up under a burden of any kind. Perseverance is that thing that says, I'm going to stay in here. I'm going to handle this. I'm going to deal with this. I'm not going to run away. I'm going to go through this. And this perseverance develops, produces maturity. And that maturity, if you look at that word, means to be complete, to be what God designed you to be, to become the person that God has in his mind of what you can become. Kelly Randolph said, none of us look forward to trials. None of us love hardship. But without them, we will never enjoy the sweet fruit of maturity. It's the only way to get there. Billy Graham said it this way. I love this. He says, mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but the fruit is grown in the valleys. You know, we all love those mountaintop experiences. You go to this special worship time. You maybe see something you never saw, experience something in the Lord you never saw before. We call that a mountaintop. And it's great. It's inspirational. But growth happens when you go back home. Growth happens when you go back home and you lose your job or you run out of money or you have a family problem or the car breaks down. And growth happens during those times, not while you're at some convention and you're just all glorified in God and, and just uh, inspired and, and excited. Growth happens in the valley. As we continue this road trip essentials message, do you understand why we put the title half the experience is getting there. Trip is not just a journey from one destination to another. The journey itself has tremendous value if we keep our eyes and our hearts open and if we learn from our experiences as we are going, as we live life. Maturity doesn't come from staying at home watching TV and eating snacks all day. Maturity doesn't come from traveling easy street and never having your vehicle break down. Maturity doesn't come from exotic vacations that someone else paid for and everything goes perfectly. I don't know of that ever happening, but I imagine it could. Maturity comes from struggles, from hardships, when our bodies and our minds and our souls are pushed to the limit and beyond. 
and then we grow. Please turn with me to a passage in Acts chapter 16 this morning. In Acts chapter 16, we read about Paul and Silas who are continuing a missionary journey that they had started some chapters before this, some months before this, and they were prevented from going one place, and God says, I want you to go this other place, and Paul sees this vision of this man in Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. Come over here and, and, and do what you're doing elsewhere to help us here in Macedonia. And they end up in Philippi. And they discover there some things about God that they had not learned before, and they, they experience other things of God being faithful, God, God working through all kinds of circumstances to accomplish his will. And I want you to see what they learned here. In their first few days there, they met with a Sabbath prayer group along the river next to Philippi, and they won their first converts to Christianity, which is a, a, a businesswoman named Lydia and her household. They all become Christians. And so kind of a, a little fledgling nucleus of believers is started, and she invites them to stay at her home, and so they continue going out every day to minister. But they run into an issue, a, a problem here, in Acts chapter 16, go down to verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. And this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Is that true? Yes. Is that a bad thing to be telling people? Not necessarily, it's probably a good thing, but she didn't stop doing it. It says she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. And when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates, and they said, These men are Jews, and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet in the stocks. So here are these two men serving God, and they get into this thing with this servant girl. They release her from her, her uh, demon possession, only to get in trouble with her masters, her owners, and now they have been stripped, beaten, and thrown into prison. Notice verse 25. How do they respond to these horrible circumstances? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What? Is that how you would have reacted? <laughs> I think we'll have a prayer service. I think we'll have a song service here in prison, is what they thought. I don't know how many of us would have reacted that way. So at midnight, they're singing and praying, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. 
The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. He's responsible that they stay there. And because he thought the prisoners should escape, but Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights. He rushed in, and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out, and he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Holding on to God in that prison, in these terrible circumstances, Paul and Silas sang to God. They worshipped God. God intervened, and the jailer and his family, and perhaps others, were brought to Jesus Christ. Henry Blackaby commented, Paul and Silas faced some of the most difficult circumstances imaginable. Falsely accused, arrested, imprisoned. They were beaten and shackled in the darkest, coldest section of the prison, but they refused to allow their horrific situation to dampen their joy. I like that. They refused to let their horrific situation dampen their joy. They did not blame God for allowing these things to happen to them. Instead, they praised God for His goodness. And in the darkness of the night, they prayed and they sang, God brought a miracle that released them from their chains. But perhaps the greatest miracle, he says, was that the Holy Spirit could so fill them that even in their painful imprisonment, they could overflow with joy. Do you overflow with joy in the pain and trials and troubles of your life? Do I? The Apostle Paul was not crushed by his circumstances. Instead, he demonstrated great joy in trying times. And perhaps that's why he wrote the Philippian letter that David referred to in the communion meditation and included so much joy. Something like 11 or 12 times he mentions joy in the Lord. And he's writing from prison to people who are having great difficulties as Christians. But the joy overshadowed it all. Paul and Silas demonstrated amazing resilience, amazing hopefulness in the most trying circumstances. Do we? And if not, why not? Why does the joy of the Lord not fill us to where any circumstance can be taken in stride? At least we can get through it because we know He will not fail us. He will not forsake us. And when we hang in there with the Lord's strength, growth is going to come. Maturity is going to come. Paul said in Philippians 4 in the passage that David referred to, I have learned the secret of being content in any circumstance. It doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. It doesn't matter whether I've got a lot or nothing. I can be content there because I still have God. And he concludes, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, I love this little parable about endurance. I have some some thoughts about the farmer and and the wisdom of the farmer, but it's a good parable. seems that an old dog fell into the farmer's well. Very, very old dog. He's about ready to die, and he fell in the well. He just really couldn't get around very well. It was an old, dried-up well, so it was worthless. And after considering the situation, the farmer decided that neither the dog nor the well were worth saving. (laughs) So he decided to bury the old dog down in the well, put him out of his misery. So he started throwing shovelfuls of dirt down on this poor dog. 
As he kept on shoveling, the dirt hit his back. The thought struck this old dog. Each time a shovel full of dirt hit his back, he'd shake off the dirt and he'd stand back up. Blow after blow, the dog would keep shaking off the dirt, stepping up, no matter how painful those shovels of dirt were. He kept fighting his panic. He kept shaking off the dirt and standing up. Finally, battered and exhausted, he stepped triumphantly over the wall of the well. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, what a mean old farmer that was, you know. But don't get hung up on that. It's a parable, okay? It's not a true story. It's a parable. Don't miss the point. Here's the point. What he thought would bury him actually benefited him. And we get this idea that things are going to bury us. Things are going to ruin us. Things are going to destroy us. And in fact, God uses them to bring great benefit to us. The way that he handled his adversity is what made the difference for that old dog. The way we handle our adversity is what makes the difference. Perseverance is the ability to shake off our troubles and to step up when a load of troubles are being dumped on us. John Eldridge tells a story of an old Scottish discus thrower from the 19th century. They were having these games, you know, in the track and field events. He decided he could throw a discus pretty far, probably as far as anybody else. So he said, I'm going to train for that. This was days before any professional trainers, before anybody to help him, so he had to develop his skills alone. And uh, so he read about the discus, a description. He read it in a book. So he decided he'd make his own. What he didn't know was that the competition discus was made of wood and it had an outer rim of iron. He made the whole thing out of iron. <laughs> so when he started training with his discus, it weighed four times as much as the discus they were going to throw in the competition. He didn't know it. He figured out, here's the record distance that anybody's ever thrown. They put that in the book. I'm going to mark that out in my field. And he started picking up this heavy piece of iron and throwing it as far as he could. And each day he would throw it just a little bit further until eventually he could throw it as far as the record. So he shows up at the competition, becomes his turn, they hand him the real discus, and it's four times lighter than the one he's been training with. Imagine how far he threw that. And for the next several years, he won every competition until everybody else came up to his speed, to his level. As Eldridge reflected on that story, he said, so that's how you do it. You train under a great burden. (laughs) You learn under a great burden. Some of us here today are under a great burden. Are you training under it? Are you learning from it? I'm not trying to discount its painfulness. I'm not trying to uh, say it's not hurtful to you, that there's not unpleasant parts about it, that that you do not have uh, the temptation to despair, to give up and say, forget it, it's not worth it. Sometimes you're going to cry, sometimes you're going to be angry at the burden that you have, but we must always take heart, we must always have a deep sense of joy that God is going to be there with us. And the burden can produce within us perseverance and then maturity, growth. Neither of these virtues so prized by God would ever be ours without the burden. So thank God even for your burden. James says, consider it all joy when you encounter and experience all kinds of trials. 
because the result is great. Mark Lennon asked a good question. Do your trials make you bitter or better? Each of you can answer for yourself. You don't have to tell anybody else around you. But are you bitter or are you better because of what you have to experience in life? I've seen bitterness and betterness, if that's a word, happen to people all around me. Get into a trial, they get into a difficulty, and man, the spirit just goes down in the gutter. You know, it's just awful. Can't can't deal with this. They're complaining. They're they're lashing out everybody else. They're blaming it on other people. I see other people going through similar difficulty or maybe even worse, and it makes them a better person. What is your first thought when a trial or trouble or problem comes up in your life? Are you immediately angry? Are you immediately frustrated? Are you depressed? These are all normal responses, but they are not the response that God wants us to give. A Christian learns to see things differently. A Christian learns, first of all, to see the big picture. You know, they don't get so wrapped up in this little thing, this immediate thing, this specific thing. They continue to see the whole big picture. They continue to look at the situation. They continue to look at their circumstances through God's eyes, which really changes their attitude. They learn to take a longer view of life, not to get all mired down in the, in the troubles of that day, What is God doing here? What might God do? What could happen? What might be the result of what I'm going through today or this week or this month or this year? Because the long view goes beyond that time frame. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Your troubles may be worse than anything I've ever experienced. I don't know. The trial that you're going through now uh, may be more difficult than anything I've had to face, but I do know this, that God will see you through that, and you will grow as a result of it, as a result of persevering through it and trusting Him and keeping your eyes focused on Him and keeping this big picture, seeing it as He does. Secondly, a Christian sees the trouble as a test, as a test to strengthen them, not as a test to fail them, not as a test to show you how unworthy you are and God is just, you know, really wanting to stamp you out with his thumb. God is wanting through this test that he may not have even brought to your life to teach you, for you to learn, for you to grow. God is not the author of every test, but he uses the test of our life to train us, to teach us, to strengthen us. And a Christian sees those trials and troubles as an opportunity to grow stronger, perhaps their best opportunity to grow stronger. Thirdly, a Christian realizes that when they persevere through their troubles and trials, the results can be both joyful and satisfying. Our perseverance ends up producing maturity and wisdom that we would never have achieved without those trials. There once was an oyster, whose story I tell, who found that sand had got under his shell, just one little grain, but it gave him much pain, for oysters have feelings, although they're so plain. Now, did he berate the working of fate, which had led him to such a deplorable state? Did he curse out the government, call for an election? No, as he lay on the shelf, he said to himself, if I cannot remove it, I'll try to improve it. So the years rolled by as the years always do, and he came to his ultimate destiny, Stu. 
And this small grain of sand which had bothered him so was a beautiful pearl, all richly aglow. Now this tale has a moral, for isn't it grand what an oyster can do with a morsel of sand? What couldn't we do if we'd only begin with all of the things that get under our skin? An old Chinese proverb says, A gem is not polished without rubbing, nor is a man made better without trials. Perhaps the favorite verse of many of us going through a difficulty is Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is a promise that was uh, has gotten many believers through difficult times. You know, they just hung on to that. Is a promise from God, not that he will prevent us from having hard times, but that he will be with us during our hard times. And in fact, he will bring good out of bad times. Apostle Paul penned this promise after learning this lesson the hard way. He wrote these words, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So this morning, I want to encourage you. If you're in a difficulty, I want to encourage you. If you're in a trial in your life, I want to encourage you. I want to strengthen you. I want you to see God is going to do something here. He will not abandon you. He will be with you. And if you are on easy street now and things are kind of sailing along just fine, know that one day a trial is going to come your way. It's just the way life is lived. So don't allow the hazards and the difficulties of life's journey to keep you from arriving at your destination. Instead, use them to help you grow stronger, more resilient, more joyful in the Lord. See the big picture. Look at your circumstances through God's eye. See your troubles as a way to grow stronger. And hold on to your joy, whatever your circumstances, good or bad. Because God will be with you. And God will see you safely home. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for the encouragement we receive from it. I pray that you would strengthen anyone here today that is in a struggle time in their life where the journey has become difficult and, and it may be tempting for them to throw in the towel and say, forget it. It's just not worth it. It is worth it. And as we go through these trials, as we go through these difficulties, you will strengthen us. You will uh, grow us. You will develop us. Help us to persevere. Help us to trust. Help us to see through your eyes that, uh, that end goal. And help us to claim and, and hang on to these promises that you will bring good even out of bad and that one day you will get us safely home to that place you're preparing for us even now. Uh, bless us as we, we grow. Bless us as we go through life and uh, as we experience these many different uh, trials and difficulties. Help us to honor you, to glorify you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God.